Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to the Important Cinema Club, and this week, we're ready to laugh, because we're returning to one of our favorite subjects, big screen comedian failures. I believe this is the fourth time we've done this. Previously, we've done big screen comedian failures episodes on SNL alumni, Canadians, and miscellaneous. And now we're doing talk show hosts. And to just further define the premise, this is comedians who were successful in other realms, be it TV, stand-up, sketch comedy, miscellaneous, who tried their hand at feature films, you know, tried to become the next Jim Carrey and had one movie, one huge out of the gate attempt and it didn't work. Mm -mm. Maybe some of these people had two. Yeah. Maybe even they play supporting roles in other films. But like there's the one that was like, this is your shot and it didn't work. And, you know, there were a lot of things to choose from, I feel like. We talked about Craig Ferguson. Probably if we're going to talk about a talk show host that we enjoyed, that would probably be number one based on the other films that we're talking about today. But yeah, we're, we're focusing on talk show hosts for this episode because to be a talk show host, it's a very particular skill. Can it translate to movies, though? Because a talk show host, the idea is, especially, you know, in 10 years ago, you go to millions of people. You cannot be an abrasive personality unless you're David Letterman. He's the one who got the pass. Well, what you often see with these with these movies is or, or in the careers of people who became talk show hosts is they start of stand-up comedians you know maybe they're on the tonight show and they get called over to johnny's couch and then what's the next move do you become a sitcom star like tim allen do you become a movie star like oh i don't know who's a stand-up who became a huge movie star eddie murphy something yeah. like that and then eventually they find that the talk show is their realm so these all come from that kind of a nether region, you know, where they started with one thing and then they ended up being a talk show. Yeah, the ass, just like yeah. disgusting. Nobody <laughs> wants this. Yeah. Flush it down the toilet. And we're going to analyze why did these ones not work? What did they bring? What, what did they hi- What did these movies highlight in these talk sh- future talk show hosts that they couldn't take advantage of? Now, I'm going to say right from the get go, I don't have that much experiences with these talk shows that these hosts, you know, hosted. You see, I didn't think so either. But I mean, watching them, it's like I've seen so many clips of these shows over the years. We're going on YouTube and it's like Jay Leno, why he thinks that I think Conan is not in the wrong, which right. pops up over and over and over. Well, you know, to be a talk show host, as you say, it's a very unique talent. Like, it's a self-effacing profession in a way because you've got to be a supporting character in your own show. You've got to be constantly seeding the ground to someone else. You've also got to, like... Be, be gentle in a way, mm. you know, you, like, yeah, you're, you're affable. You're, yeah, you, you're people funny. enjoy hanging out with you. People want to go to sleep with you. There are all sorts of people like, you know, Jerry Lewis tried his hand at being a talk show host. <laughs> Chevy Chase, you know, these, too abrasive. Yeah. Well, Jerry Lewis, obviously very sharp edges. Guys who are very narcissistic as well. And I'm sure like talk show host Howard Stern is certainly self-involved. David Letterman is certainly self-involved. But when they interview people, they are curious about them. They do have like an angle on the person they talk about. But when you see Chevy Chase's interviews, he's just flailing. I can't believe that we missed the opportunity to check out Private Parts, the Howard Stern classic. See, it wasn't really a failure, though, was it? It was just a kind of like... Uh, did it do money? Like it People kind of liked money. it, didn't people they? People liked it. It did okay. But I feel like that was just not a realm. He voluntarily did not pursue that realm. That Fartman movie that he had in production forever just never could quite get off the ground. Oh, too bad. Now, we did throw out Steve Allen because... He was a talk show host. He was a personality. Well, I watched his movie. I skipped through it after Will said that. Eh, you don't need to watch it, Justin. Yeah. I could not believe when I turned it on. I went, two hours? Well, let's deal with Steve Allen first. Then. Now, Steve Allen is one of those figures I feel like we don't have that much affinity for, other than maybe appearing on The Simpsons, where he parodies himself. A show that he would go on to absolutely hate later on in his career. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he had kind of, I feel, you know, his mind was kind of going. He became against like anything like like violent or non-family values on television. He was a huge opponent of Howard Stern, for yeah. instance. He and the Simpsons fell him. under that. Which is funny because Steve Allen was a big supporter of Lenny Bruce mm-hmm. when he was alive. That's what I mean. When you get older, you know, your faculties are starting to go. <laughs> Maybe you got some people around you pushing you in certain directions. Well, Steve Allen's only starring role in a film was, oh, and by the way, Steve Allen, for those who don't know, he hosted The Tonight Show briefly. He then hosted many other different kinds of shows. But the Benny Goodman story from 1956, this was part of that huge wave of late 1940s 1950s biopics of musicians bygone entertainment figures the jolson story was the big trendsetter 
Then there were all sorts of movies like the George Raft story, the Buster Keaton story. Yankee Doodle Dandy. Well, that, that, yeah, that even preceded the Jolson story, actually. Oh, also the Seven Little Foys with Bob Hope. You know, most of these movies, Yankee Doodle Dandy is probably the best remembered. Mm-hmm. But most of these movies, people don't watch anymore. No. Like it's fair to say. I mean, they were literally just kind of like prestige films put out. Hey, this is important. Then forgotten completely to time. Mm-hmm. And Steve Allen movie, it's basically him playing Woody Allen, doing jazz, and Woody black Allen. musicians coming up to him and going, you're the best of us, Steve Allen. Yeah, that's right. So, well, first of all, this is all that music that's from the Woody Allen movies. <laughs> yes. ben- Benny Goodman, the Dixieland jazz, great. And the story is that... You know, he's a a poor Jewish boy. The movie sort of doesn't really get into the Judaism too much. It's it's more implied than stated. Yeah. Hey, it was that period. But but he discovers the flute. And at first, I love the opening scenes of the movie where like little Benny Goodman is playing the flute. And he's like, oh, the flute. I wish I could be playing the saxophone. And I remember the scene in like Walk Hard <laughs> where where like he's he, they're like, you cannot tell me this man will ever be a great musician. You know, it's that kind of vibe. And like Walk Hard, when Benny Goodman gets on stage, oh, man, the people lose their mind. Oh, man. So I, I, yeah, I am willing to believe that like Dixieland jazz, which I like, by the way, I like Dixieland jazz. Mm. What's not to like? Especially when it's played by white people. Especially when it's played by Mr. Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, not looking up at the audience. <laughs> yeah, that's just right. keeping his eyes down and then shuffles off stage. But when in this movie, <laughs> so <laughs> I love, yeah, Benny Goodman, his, his parents want him to play like, you know, the classical music, but he wants a uh, hot music that swings. And, you know, Dixieland jazz. And you see him performing in front of these audiences. Well, first of all, him and his band, they have trouble, like, they have trouble getting acceptance. So he does, like, you know, stayed classical music for a while. But then he's like, fuck it. I'm going to stand. I'm going to bust out these tunes. Stand by my principles. And then later in the movie, you see him performing to, like, a young audience that's just, like, full-on Beatlemania. They're like, this music is so hot. And it's Dixieland jazz, (laughs) which is so funny. Well, and Steve Allen? Boring man on screen. Oh my God. No charisma. Just it makes you wonder, like, I guess you had to be there and watch him in those talk shows, right? Well, yeah, he's a host. That's Mm -hmm. what he is. He was a host. He wasn't a movie star. Mm -mm. Whole different can of worms. And is this something we'll be saying over and over again? I would just say that of the four people that we're talking about, to me, to my eyes, the least charisma. Uh, I agree. The other ones I could all see, I could see them being like... Mm, Well, one of them that we'll talk about... Well, you could be talking about two, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, one of them doesn't have a chin, the one does have a chin, and I'm pro-chin. You're pro-chin, okay, great. Well, okay, what do we we talk about next? Do we start with... uh, Let's talk about Jay Leno. I can't do a Jay Leno. I always try. Yeah, see this? Yeah, that's me. It's Jay Leno. I feel like I'm just doing other people's impression (laughs) of him. I mean, that's what it basically is, right? Now, Jay Leno, the stand-up comedian, (laughs) like, watching this movie, the thing people- Collision course is what the movie's called. The thing that people know about Jay Leno is he will not stop working. To which I say, where? Where is Jay Leno working now? And he's packing those houses. I'm kind of obsessed with Jay Leno because whenever he does an interview, like he's he's such a freak because nobody cares more about being number one than Jay Leno. Nobody is more cutthroat. Nobody is more dedicated. He is on the road every freaking day of the year back when he was at the tonight show you know yeah he would do his shows and then he would go on the road he'd go on the road on the weekend and he's the host of the tonight show it mattered to him so much because he wanted to he wanted to stay good or like he 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 could only (laughs) i need to polish that monica Lewinsky joke to just like a fine sheen in 2019 well well yeah then you see him he's also interviewed and he'll he'll also be like yeah you know it's just showbiz you know it's nice it's not that big a deal you know you right joke yeah cash check and then you go home yeah. uh, that's, that's but you never cash check jay leno doesn't cash his that's checks. right he never he never spent his tonight show money which was his sick way of seeming relatable <laughs> I'm just a normal guy, you know? I'm a normal guy with 10,000 cars. Mm -hmm. And so Jay Leno, this is pre... So he's a talk show host. Can I tell you one other thing about Jay Leno just while we're at it? I was listening to him on... Piercing blue eyes. I was listening to him on Dana Carvey and David Spade's podcast, which I love. Yeah. And he was talking about the younger comedians and the more like confessional comedians. And he was saying, yeah, you know, you think comedians uh, talk about their inner voice. And it's like, ah... Yeah, in a voice, uh, that's not going to fly at the Nevada gravel salesman's convention. And it's like, to him, that's what's important. Yeah, that's the top. Being able to kill in every room. Being able to kill at the Nevada gravel salesman's convention. It's killing in these rooms. 
Have I you guess. ever seen Jay Lano do stand-up? Live? No. no. Or even like just clips. Well, Does it not capture well, well, the actually, energy? Actually, no, because unique among comedians of his generation. He's never released an album? He's never done a special, never done an album. Because wow. he always he always said, oh, if I do all my jokes on TV once, uh, I can't do them again. And I can make more money with these jokes over, over the years if I keep doing them. <laughs> and so I, you're just going into like... <laughs> standard jewish comedian impression that that's not true that's not true no now the thing on jay leno is some, sometimes, he, sometimes he's really up here and then sometimes he's really down here and then the he real robin down, williams let me go down <laughs> i'm i'm the master impressionist okay okay and so jay leno not a talk show i would ever watch my yeah, parents didn't yeah. watch him you know what i think that's the big difference between me and other kids that i know is that your parents had to watch talk shows for I feel it to trickle down to my, kids. My parents were a Letterman family, I'd mm-hmm. say. I knew from an early age that Letterman was like the, Funny, good, the, yeah, good, the good one. one. And Leno was the bad one. And that Leno was also like the pandering one. What the hell were you thinking? That's a classic Jay Leno to... Um, yeah, oh, oh, to Hugh Grant. Hugh yeah, Grant, yeah. yeah. Classic. Jaywalking. <laughs> oh, yeah. What is his... He loves those headlines. Oh, headlines. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, can you believe it? There's a spelling mistake in the newspaper. It's crazy. You got him, Jay. You got him. <laughs> But before that, I mean, in the 80s, and everyone always says that in the 80s, he was one of the best stand-up comics. That's what they say. I have trouble believing it. We had to be there. We had to be there. Have you ever seen the clips of him on the old Letterman show? Doing stand-up? No. He'd be a guest. And I mean, people who were there at the time say that they always looked forward to him being on Dave's show. Mm -hmm. They thought he was so funny. And like the writers were always like, oh, we can sit back this week because Jay's on, you Mm. know, a dynamo. David Letterman himself says funniest man he's ever known. Wow. And I mean, certainly the most confident, like you see him on those old Letterman shows and like he owns the room. I mean, it's lame stuff about like, well, it's like, yeah. Can you believe the cable repairman hasn't come yet? Oh, yeah. If you look and you search Jay Leno, like stand up, the first thing that'll come up is like airports. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. That's his kind of material that he trots out. Yeah. So at that height of fame, and he was, you know, a regular guest host of The Tonight Show. He tried his hand at movie stardom with Collision Course. Directed by, listen, you got to get a solid gold director. You got Louis Teague, who I'm going to say I have a soft spot for. Directed Cujo. Directed. Ooh, Navy Seals. (laughs) Uh, Alligator. Alligator. I mean, that movie rules. Louis Teague... I was surprised when I found out he directed this because he's like slightly better than I expected. Yeah, well, this is real TV pilot energy to this movie. It, uh, it looks movie. bad. It yeah, looks, it looks cheap. Bad. But it's set in Detroit. It's one of those wave of movies that's all about how the Japanese are going to take us over. Also, it's post, you know, Eddie Murphy buddy cop comedy. So who do you remember? So I guess Jay Leno is the Eddie Murphy in this situation or is it Pat Morita who's the Jay Leno? Jay Leno is the Chris Tucker and Pat Morita is Jackie Chan. Yeah, there you go. And watching this movie, you know, movies used to be good. That, you know, when the credits start, you're like, Dino De Laurentiis, ah, what a mark of quality. And then just a parade of character actors. It's like Chris Sarandon, Tom Noonan. Uh, Ernie Ra- Hudson. Randall Tex Cobb. Al Waxman, the King of Kensington. You see all these names and it's like, oh man, am I in for a treat? Hey, look, it's Mike Starr. Mike Starr's in it. Yeah, very briefly. So it's, yeah, set in the Motor City, which is crumbling because of the wily Japanese. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's all their fault. Well, that's what we learn, ultimately. Mm. There's a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment among the characters in the film. Listen, I don't truck that kind of sentiment, especially in my favorite film, Gung Ho, direct by Ron Howard. That's not problematic, is it? I haven't watched it in a while. Did you watch that when we did our Ron Howard episode? God, I probably did. Oh, <laughs> Just I blasted that from my memory when I watched a dozen Ron Howard movies. So there's a stolen auto part. A prototype. A prototype that's going to like revolutionize the car industry. It's stolen by, you know, Chris Sarandon as the mafioso turned uh, legitimate businessman. There's a Japanese cop played by Pat Morita who comes over. There's a wisetrack in Detroit cop played by Mr. Jay Leno. Here's what I'll say about Jay Leno in this movie. Not offensively bad. Like, it's fine watching the movie. I could see him being funny in another movie. Yes. Not this one. No, he doesn't have many jokes in this film. Well, that's what surprised me more than anything. I was expecting like more, him riffing, more right? quips. I was, like, more improv, maybe. Mm. Like, let let Jay loose. And Pat Morita, not much to do in this film. No. <laughs> Seems a little lost. I'm glad he's co-starring in a film. The chemistry isn't really there. No, they only get together 40 minutes into the movie, which lets you know what kind of film it is. Yeah, I mean, there were certain things... 
I mean, there was very, actually very little in this movie that I liked, but like it has that sort of like bad 80s action movie music and yeah, certain it, set do, pieces. Do, 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 kind of a fake Harold well, Faltermeyer score. Near the end, there's like some fun, like explosions are going off, trains are passing by, the machine guns. Motorcycle chase. <laughs> that Jay Leno was driving that motorcycle. Yeah, that was pretty funny. I mean, it's like Jay Leno is slotted into this film, clearly built you know, without him in mind. So he's there, the chin, he's driving a car that probably came right out of Jay Leno's garage. Mm -hmm. I do think that one of the problems though, and it's the opposite problem that we're going to see with Jimmy Fallon is he's, he's too smug for how not funny he is. Mm. Like, I don't know. Like he's just a, he has like asshole energy to him, which is a delicate balance. I think if he were funnier, like when he does some of the like, you know, race jokes and stuff, I thought, I thought like Nick Nolte did it in 48 hours. Why can't Jay Leno? Well, it's because Nick Nolte just has a little bit more. He's t- angry. He has texture. And also like Chris Tucker doing the, ja- doing the Asian stuff in Good. Rush Hour. Yeah. Well, the thing is though, it actually doesn't play like it does here because it's, I don't know, because if you want to talk about power dynamics or whatever. Mm. Um, well, I mean, yeah, Pat Morita has no power in this film because he's not a star really. Pat Morita. Yeah. He just doesn't have a lot to do. Mm. Pat Morita is no Jackie Chan. No. And. Jay Leno is not Chris Tucker. Well, this film does have that infamous climax that when it happened, you've seen YouTube clips of it that still plays. So good, yeah. Where Pat Morita kicks Chris Sarandon through a windshield and you see Chris Sarandon's dummy head just like pull back like the neck is snapping. Really good stuff. So yeah, it's mostly just a generic film that has the novelty of Jay Leno being in it. Which is not not enough. No, it's not a Jay Leno vehicle. I'm surprised Jay Leno didn't act in more movies but i guess it was just once he got that late you know tonight show gig why does he need to act he doesn't have time also this one obviously didn't go well and obviously he was doing very well in other spheres and he clearly had no passion for being an actor cast jay leno in the maniac cop remake as the maniac (laughs) cop obviously he's got the chin no prosthetics needed and i mean he only looks more like that now (laughs) i mean he just had that fire accident so you know he's right up there the unsinkable jay leno piercing blue eyes i find jay leno a lot more likable now that he's not at the center of culture here's the thing that we need to do does jay leno ever come to toronto we if need he to, comes, I'll, I'll we see need him. to see him do stand up. I would love to see him do stand up. I, I, I love the God Leno. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's take a break with a uh, break. Or our next entry is a daytime talk show host, Ellen DeGeneres. A slightly different trajectory than the other ones, because at this point with 1996's Mr. Wrong. Directed by Nick Castle, the man who played Michael Myers, directed films like The Last Starfighter and Mr. Wrong. <laughs> and yeah, that's about it. But yeah, he played Michael Myers in Halloween, for God's sake. He was part of that John Carpenter like group, which included Tommy Lee Wallace, who would direct films like Vampires, Los Muertos. And fitting in a way that he made a horror film instead <laughs> of a comedy. Mr. Wrong. So yeah, Ellen Je- DeGeneres' trajectory. She was also a stand-up comedian, one of the ones who you know performed on The Tonight Show. At this point, she had the traditional trajectory of sitcom. a sitcom very popular the ellen show and you know the next thing if you're if you're that kind of comedian the final brass ring is movie stardom tim allen of course conquered it bill cosby failed to jungle to jungle <laughs> yeah the santa claus huge yes. hit but cosby who was such a huge sitcom star never became a huge movie star leonard part five didn't take off neither did he ghost dad. ghost dad although his supporting role in jack very, oh, very powerful oh. hey sorry to bring up bill cosby everyone i know that just made, brings the yeah, brings the room down brings the room down but uh yeah let's get back to good person ellen degeneres <laughs> <laughs> okay isn't it funny that most of the people that we were talking about on this show have had a sort of heel turn mm. it just shows how like delicate the art of being like the most affable person ever is well, what you got to do is you got to be like craig ferguson get out while the going's good you're like i'm done and then literally install a villain in the role that you used to have that's right so you can only look fondly on who has come before so yeah w- with ellen degeneres obviously she's become a sort of a prototypical Karen. Well, everyone's like, you know, working on Ellen DeGeneres' show, she fires everybody, you can't make eye contact with her, it's hell working there. And that was common knowledge for the long... What, what like, blew the lid off that? I feel like... There was maybe there was a man, you know, I remember probably an article of some sort. Well, do you remember there was also that time when she like was uh seen palling around with George W. Bush? Yes, but I don't think that killed her though, it didn't kill her, but there was an accumulation of these things. There was the Dakota Johnson uh, <laughs> interview, yes, you remember that? There was an accumulation of like, oh, things aren't right with Ellen, mm-hmm. she's no longer the most affable person. What you mean, the show where she likes to terrify her guests by having someone jump out of a box isn't the you know, I gave you all the clues. She likes to dance with yeah, the audience. Yeah, she's fun. 
fun. Yeah. Well, apparently she just can't find a man. No, and that's in what, Mr. Wrong. That's what we're seeing in Mr. Wrong. Yeah. She's, she's Look, a- listen, we won't make the jokes. You can make your own jokes. She, she would come out the year after this right. movie was released. She's on the dating scene, you know, just trying to find a boyfriend and having trouble. And along comes Bill Pullman, who seems, well, he's Bill Pullman, for God's sake. He seems like the perfect man. But then as the movie goes on, he becomes a creepy stalker. Instantly, almost. Like, once that, you know, heel turn happens to Bill Pullman, he is stalking her at her window as a clown. Yeah. <laughs> he's dropping off a million things in front of her house. Gaslighting her, like, turning all of society against her. It's the real i married an axe murderer if you will and this movie well it's not funny no there, there are ellen degenerates is the straight man in the movie so she's just reacting to this madness that bill pullman is doing right bill pullman definitely has the showier part i think ellen degenerates is like okay in the movie she's fine she's affable. the movie is like 90s ass comedy like but also Nick castle shows up with like swooping camera moves and like right. at one point isn't there like pick gets knocked over to like zooms into the red Oh, there's a really lame subplot with Joan Cusack as, like, uh, Bill yeah. Pullman's ex-girlfriend. Who's trying to kill Ellen DeGeneres. But, I mean, the problem is, and it's similar to Collision Course, no jokes. Yeah. Not enough jokes. Specifically from Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah. Because, uh, is yeah. it because she's in her, well, I want to be affable. Like, was that her role on the Ellen sitcom? I never saw the Ellen sitcom. Well, she's an, uh, she was always, like, an understated performer. Mm. She was always, like, a kind of dry wit in her stand-up. And I feel like she's trying to do something here. That moment where she's, like... The big comedy moment in the movie where she's trying to break up with Bill Pullman and she's saying, well, you know, some spices go with other spices, Mm. but then other spices want to, you know, that scene that feels like an Ellen DeGeneres stand up bit. But like she barely, you know, this is somebody else who obviously was more suited to the small screen because she's uh, soft and cuddly. Yeah. And then when you're trying to put her on like the big canvas of a comedy and you're creating all this madness around her, almost trying to make up for the fact that there isn't a you know, a core there to hang the movie on. And it's part of the reason why tonally this movie becomes such a mess in the last act, because like <laughs> so wacky. it becomes, it becomes like so mean. And like at the center of it is this person who seems like so helpless. And and she can't do anything. And yeah. like it ends with her like on the run and having to change her name. If there was somebody who like could be more manic in mm. the center, like a Matthew Broderick and a cable guy, if you will. Yeah. I don't you know what she needed to be in this movie is more mean. Yeah. Because that's what you get in the cable guy, right? That Matthew Broderick is kind of an asshole in the film she's too she's too nice and so so much of the movie it's, it's like, like oh i feel bad watching this yeah and it, and by consequence it's not that funny yeah and so yeah was this did she act at all in other films this was her big star she role. was in a few other movies like obviously she did the voice in finding nemo she had supporting roles in of course the classic film ed tv <laughs> oh yeah ron howard as well as goodbye lover i look forward to her, her turn into daily wire movies where she will star in <laughs> Cancel culture will never get me. <laughs> so finally, we've been saving it the best for last. We're talking about a little man named Jimmy Fallon. Another person who had a bit of a, is heel turn the right ter- term? Yeah, the people, I mean, the, he's the still, Donald Trump hair thing. He's still doing a show though, right? Do you know anybody who likes Jimmy Fallon? No. I feel like more people like Jay Leno than Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, absolutely. Jay Leno, like moms and dads are like, I like, you know, I like Jay Leno. You know, he's fun. Jimmy Fallon has had trouble transitioning to being an Aminos Grease. But people, Jimmy Fallon has his own ride. I think at, is it Universal or one of the Disney parks? Wow. So do you become an alcoholic? No, you go like on a wild, you know, ride through New York City. Wow. And so like people clearly like him. People are watching him. Well, not that he's, he has consistently got lower ratings than Stephen Colbert. Now you would have watched Jimmy Fallon during his SNL era. Yeah. Did you like Jimmy Fallon. I, Jimmy Fallon to me always seemed, and this may not be true in anyone's other's eyes, a like lesser version of Chris Kattan in wow. his SNL run. Well, actually, Jimmy Fallon kind of falls more into the mold of like a Chevy Chase. I, I remember like, a, like what was his characters on SNL? Well, they weren't characters so much. Like he, he broke. He, that was his shtick. He, yeah, he he laughed during sketches. He was the Weekend Update guy. I mean, I remember Nathan Rabin in his old review of Dirty Work writing that sort of Chevy Chase's template for a certain kind of SNL frontman because Chevy Chase was the first breakout star. It's like you're white, you're kind of smug and mischievous, you're handsome in a sort of approachable way. And in that template, we've had 
various faux Chevys over the years, like Norm MacDonald, Seth Meyers. But Norm MacDonald, like, I can understand, like Chevy, he's kind of got that raw edge to his stuff, right? Did Jimmy have that on SNL? Well, no, he was just a bit of a scamp. Okay. You know, he was cute. Mm. That that was his thing. Well, listen, I agree. And I think also on his talk show now, like, what is he, like 55 at this point? Like, yeah. he, I think he's had trouble transitioning to be like... I mean, he's like, pickled, so, you know, well, maybe a little bit longer. He's still, he's still trying to be cute. Yeah. That, that's my note. I would say, let yourself go gray. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, big calculation in Taxi from 2004. Now, this is a remake of a... Luc Besson. Yeah, film. part of his wave of kind of French meets, you know, Asian inspiration. There's four Taxi films. That exist in France. So this movie is set on the streets of New York City. There is a gang of four Portuguese-speaking supermodels led by Giselle Bunchen, and they're robbing banks and stuff. And teamed up to stop them are the most incompetent cop on the force, played by Jimmy Fallon, and a wacky taxi driver, played by Queen Latifah. Queen Latifah's fine in this movie. She is fine, but... She's a much better actor than Jimmy Fallon. What, the problem yeah. is that she shares the screen with Jimmy Fallon all the time. And I know that there's a reason they're together. I... I saw the movie yesterday and I can't remember why it was. And it's certainly not chemistry. <laughs> yeah. So Jimmy Fallon, watching this movie, you wonder like, who is, is this like a make a wish kid that gets a star <laughs> in a movie? Like, what is this guy's shtick other than being annoying? I think the big miscalculation here was making Fallon such a loser. Yeah. Because what what, what would be the op- like the difference though? Like making him a cool guy? Brooklyn nine nine. Yeah, so like Andy Samberg, that he's competent enough, but he can still be wacky. That's right. Mm. And and I think what you need in this role is, yeah, somebody who's like, like he's sad, this character. He's so incompetent like for the whole movie. Yeah, he does nothing right, ever. He, he's getting bossed around a lot. And I don't know, there needs to be like, I don't know, it's very difficult. There needs to be a certain like calculation of like a certain amount of smugness, a certain amount of competence, a certain amount of vulnerability. Like, you know, there's a whole trajectory of like Axel Foley, Fletch, Ace Ventura but type. They're like, competent at what they do. That is like right. the big miscalculation with something like this. Right. And I feel like Queen Latifah, who is the more competent one, also like the funnier one, the mm-hmm. more care like she like eat, eats too much of the oxygen. And the two of them I mean, it's hard to tell what he brings to the dynamic. Annoyance. Yeah. He's so annoying in this movie. And neither of them are like the funny man or the straight man. So they're not. I mean, he's supposed to be the funny man. Like in the film, he's supposed to be cracking the jokes. There's a miscalculation that when you have a double team and you're trying to redo that Nick Nolte, Eddie Murphy thing of one of them being annoyed by the other person, the audience needs to like the Eddie Murphy character, Mm. but still understand that Nick Nolte is annoyed by him. If you are just annoyed like Queen Latifah is in this movie, that is a huge problem with the structure of the film. Mm. That every time Jimmy Fallon shows up, he's like pissing his pants, causing accidents, visiting his drunk mom. It's the film ends with like all the characters we've met in the movie all together at like a NASCAR track as if we're like I'm glad to see the whole team back together again it's like no just end the movie I'm tired of being here this sucks yeah so taxi doesn't work as a Jimmy Fallon vehicle I guess right Will but does it work as anything no not I don't did you like some of the car chases yeah the car chases were fine yeah you know they're shot on the streets of New York, question mark? Probably Vancouver, a little bit of LA. There's a little bit of CGI, but not that much. So you, it's practical when it's happening. I feel it's it's sad, though, because Jimmy Fallon, it's not that sad. I don't give a shit about Jimmy Fallon. But like, <laughs> poor, poor Jimmy Fallon. He kind of had two big shots. It was this one, and then there was Fever Pitch right after. And those were the two shots. A film made for him because the losing team that it's about won in real life, and they implemented it in the ending of the movie. Incredible. But like, I think, I think it could have worked out for him. Of all these comedians, this is the one that I I could see the most becoming a movie star. I could see him becoming Jimmy a, Fallon. Yeah, I could see him becoming almost like a sort of like, you know, he could have had a Garden State. I think he had it in him. I so think, like so like playing a sad sack. Either like a sad sack who's also like got a little bit of a. I would lean into his like scampish quality. You know, mm. I would lean into. So his, like, what uh, would be the perfect Jimmy? So if you were like God of Hollywood and you could just build a project off of Jimmy Fallon, what would it be? I would copy and- Andy Samberg's career. I, I mean, Andy Samberg has not had any success as a star of anything. Well, of movies. Well, okay, he's had he's had better movies. Yeah, his movies are better, but they haven't been successful. And you know what's funny? When you see Jimmy Fallon performing with like Justin Timberlake doing sketches and stuff mm-hmm. with the two of them. Listen, this is not my ideal way to spend a Friday night. But listen, <laughs> sitting watching Jimmy and J- Justin, you know, laughing if, it up. But if you do, and you see the back and forth between them, like 
that I don't know. It's that di- it's that dynamic. It's that kind of like power. Like I could see him. I could see Jimmy Fallon doing the pop star movie, doing that kind of performance. I could see him doing the kind of performance that Sandberg does in Brooklyn Nine Nine mm-hmm. or Hot Rod. Yeah. Well, Sandberg, like you know, his shtick is he's someone who thinks a lot of himself, but can still be sympathetic. And you'll still buy it. I don't see that in Jimmy Fallon because he's so smug. But also, the pe- to the people who like Jimmy Fallon, to the people who who like, are these people? They have to be out there. <laughs> the people who liked him on SNL, what they liked was that he seemed to be having fun. Yeah, they liked that he broke. Jimmy Fallon fans, let us know in the comments <laughs> politely what you like about Jimmy Fallon. I think I've I think I've hit on it. It's that he seems to be having fun. I don't. Do, I not mean, to he's me. drunk, probably. Well, yeah, yeah. But on the on you know weekend update or maybe his early talk show. I don't know. Whatever. I mean, Jimmy Fallon must have awareness of how he's perceived, right? I think he does, and, and I think he, he's done it haunts some, him. I think he's done some teary magazine interviews. About <laughs> Has he? Yeah, the Donald Trump hair thing was has haunted him since then. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, well, Jimmy Fallon didn't work in this. Didn't work in the movie right after, and then he just left movies. No more movies for Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. So we dug up four movies and we buried, buried them, all them all over, over again. again. <laughs> We're always hoping for for a discovery. We're, it, yeah, we're hoping for a Freddy got fingered, which is never going to happen with these kind of things, right? Who knows? I'm sure we'll return to big screen comedian failures. Yep. And you don't need... People always like to jump in the comments of this and be like, well, and it wasn't actually a big screen comedian. You know what? You're right. You win. You win. Yeah. Don't need to write that. So what should our next subject be, big screen comedian failures? Like what other kind of stuff can we like dig up and, you know, just to bury again? I know. Old radio comedians. (laughs) Oh, well, that is a very specific category. We could do, yeah, we could do Fred Allen again. We could do, <laughs> we could do Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. We could do Milton Berle. Did you go and explore? Because you were like, Johnny Carson acted in a movie. <laughs> he, you know, it's just not, the one movie that Johnny Carson was in, he was, he didn't have a big enough role. Did Ed McMahon ever act in any movies? <laughs> well, he did the narration for Daughter of Horror. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, so that's it for this week's episode. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Do we have any letters, Justin? We do have letters. Our first one is from Peter, and he goes, Dear Cinema Men, (laughs) I guess that's what we're called by now. Are there any movies you love despite one of the main characters being horribly miscast? I only ask because I just revisited Rope, my favorite Hitchcock, and one of my favorite movies ever, even though Jimmy Stewart basically plays George Bailey and is utterly unconvincing as a sociopathic nihilistic Nietzschean professor you too have a fine show yours in cinema peter well sometimes i feel that miscasting can sort of add to the texture of something so here's an example arnold schwarzenegger in jingle all the way oh i mean he makes that movie well that's the thing Arnold Schwarzenegger, an Austrian bodybuilder playing an everyday dad, Howard Ratner. Is that what his name is? Just a suburban dad trying to get a Turbo Man doll. As you said, when we talked about the movie, if Tom Hanks were in that role. Yeah, we wouldn't be talking about it today. Right. So it adds something. And then you add something like Keanu Reeves and Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, does he destroy that movie? No, he is clearly miscast, but you learn to love it because the movie around it, it just, you know, makes the kind of entire picture of this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Miscast is such a weird word because it's like they stick out like a sore thumb in the role. But if you love the movie, aren't they just part of it? And like, doesn't it make it in some way? I mean, Rope is an interesting one to bring up because the kind of texture of the movie, the fact that it, or the style, it's one long take, kind of makes that movie as well. So you can almost have anybody in those roles. And if you buy the rest of the picture, then you're fine. That's certainly my experience with that movie. I've, I've never really had a problem with Jimmy Stewart in that movie. I think just because, like, I don't know, Jimmy Stewart in a Hitchcock movie, it just feels like part of the furniture. I'm trying to think of, like, miscast actors, and my mind goes to, like, Sylvester Stallone. What has he tried to put himself in? Like, Oscar for example the john landis film but i don't love that movie so that's not a very good example no no i mean well you probably have to go back to like hollywood films are probably a good example when you're trying to make star vehicles where like john wayne is genghis khan and well, big yeah. opus. but of course you don't love that movie no, either i don't <laughs> i have you know what i've never seen Not, that neither movie, have I. so maybe i would love it if i checked it out you know what i'll think about it maybe it could be a subject for an episode somewhere down the line so our next letter is from nicholas and he goes hey guys thank you so much for helping me get deeper into film and teaching me parts about film history that are glossed over in most textbooks yeah that's right the important cinema club teaches you stuff that the textbooks won't cover oh yeah take that david boardwell i was wondering about your thoughts on hey have you read the new boardwell book he has a really good new one. Oh, i didn't know that what's it what's it called his new book is called perplexing plots popular storytelling and the poetics of murder 
Borwell has just been cranking them out lately. Like that one where he like looked at older films to prove that they were experimental in their technique and it wasn't like the new wave that kind of pioneered that stuff. Love Borwell. Love him following his passions. He has completely scarred me about what films from Hong Kong I focused on based on his book Planet Hong Kong, even though that in the end they have like no weight at all. But he focused on them on his new editions. He got obsessed with the film Initial D. You remember that film? <laughs> yes. That yes. was based on the famous Japanese property. And he just like broke down the racing scenes like shot by shot. A film that no one talks about anymore. Huge hit in its day though. So this letter continues. I was wondering about your thoughts on Mamoru Oshi. I've heard you aren't big fans of animation. Wait, 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 wait. I, where, where, where does this come from? Not big fan. I love animation. Yeah. Is it anime specifically that he's talking about though? I mean, but I love anime. You love anime. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think I just, I'm not all that. I know like some of the hits. But. Yeah. What I would say is that Will sometimes, you know, can be a little snarky where you call things for babies. If it's like, I don't think I do. That's not true. You're, th- you're thinking other people. Old Will. Or I'm thinking somebody else. Maybe you're thinking Old Will. Okay. But his live action work seems I right. Bugs up. Bunny. Yeah. I mean, we I, love Bugs Bunny. He's my Bunny. favorite man. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're thinking specifically of anime, but we, hey, well, I tried to get you on board for a bunch of stuff. I so. like anime. Yeah. But his live action work seems right up your alley. They're low budget art house, Asian sci-fi campy action comedies, which is basically how I stereotyped your taste. Thanks again <laughs> for all the great work you do, Nick. Well, what are some key ones? Are you familiar? Yeah, he did. He had like this trilogy. It was like the Red Spectacle trilogies. They're very kind of, I don't want to say Godard, but like French New Wave-ish mm. that they're playing with the form and they're like science fiction movies, but like they make you aware that you're watching a movie. Like there's one that has a famous chase in front of like just static backgrounds that they're like running and there's like a light on them and things like that what would be interesting about doing this director is that like what he's famous for like ghost in the shell he took like a manga that was i do know ghost in the shell by very the way. popular and he completely made it pretentious and self-involved and that kind of made it popular so it's interesting yeah. seeing that kind of dissonance and that's kind of the way that his career went have you did you ever see avalon that was one that like no. played a lot like you know on dvd and the covers like it's like the matrix meets etc cetera, etc cetera, where it's like are we in a video game are we not and his films were like very like slow and very heady and then recently in his career, his, his films have gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And like, he seemingly loves action films, but he can't quite deliver an action. It's, it's kind of fascinating. He made a film where the gimmick was supposed to be that it was five short films and each short film was the climax of an action movie that does not exist. And, like, it doesn't really work out that way. And since then, he's been making, like, DTV films that don't even get releases with English subtitles. Like, so I can't think of a director that was heralded as big as he was that, like, you know, everyone knows what Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell 2, Innocence. Mm -hmm. That came out. Big, giant deal. And is now making DTV ugly ass looking films his newest one is like i'm a vampire and i'm fighting people shot on like ugly looking mini dv no version exists with english subtitles it came out like two years ago so like has there been such a like up and down of a filmmaking career so i think there'd be a lot to tackle there that we could do like his three eras of filmmaking and he started very early on in animation like you know doing key animation and working on tons of shows before finally he developed his own kind of slow style sounds great yeah we'll do it just to prove that we love animation we have nothing to prove. Popeye. I love Popeye. Yeah, you love... You know, so basically, anything like 30s, 40s, 50s. Hey, I I, I like uh, Woody and Buzz. <laughs> they're, they're my friends. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I love Toy Story. Could we do... Hmm. Uh, we'll get to that when we get to our Tim Allen episode. <laughs> Toy Story. <laughs> Inevitable. Threaten. Yeah, what are the Tim Allen movies? Santa Claus. Uh, oh no, no Santa Claus. We did a whole episode. Santa, yeah, yeah, we've already yeah. done a Tim Allen episode. <laughs> no, no, no. Jungle to Jungle. Red Belt. Oh, he's great. We did Red Belt because we did a Mammoth oh, episode. Oh, god damn, yeah. So Jungle to Jungle, I'm going to keep saying it until... Somebody. Yeah. Zoom. Zoom, yeah. I almost said Sky High, but no, that's the other one that's that, not but Zoom. Yeah, Zoom is the uh, one that he's in. He's in Galaxy Quest. Oh yeah, that's he's great. In Galaxy that's Quest. good. Yeah, Big Trouble, the nine eleven movie. That's right. <laughs> Based on David Barry. David Barry, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, lots of Tim Allen still. And then we'll watch all of Last Stand Man up. Standing. <laughs> we'll watch all ten seasons or whatever. A show that like 
You know, they're trying to keep him down. You know, cancel culture, even though he has 10 seasons He's of the last, last man standing. Well, thank you very much for that letter. And this week on our Patreon, it's our usual What We've Been Watching episode, where we talk about all sorts of things, like... Well, we've been talking about exciting movie screenings in Toronto, talking about the films of Lee So Nam, talking about a lost Ed Wood movie. That oh, yeah, that Will dives in. He's watched it. He has his thoughts on it. An apocryphal Ed Wood movie. Did he make it? Did he not? There's only one way to find out. And that's to check out the page. Let's give him a little taste by, we missed a movie that you just watched, Jess Franco's Faceless. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I was going to talk about that. Well, I was my second time watching Faceless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one that's been in existence forever. Like there was a Shriek Show DVD back in the day. It's from Jess Franco right before he went to his VHS period. Well, this was Jess Franco. Yeah, I know this is expensive. Yeah, Jess Franco, who made 180 movies. Most of the 80s, he was making porn, literally porn. And in the late 80s, he but had, he loved it. <laughs> he had a brief run where he got to make like bigger movies again. Yeah. And Faceless was his big comeback film. And what's I had a great time revisiting it because you watch it too early. It's a Christmas movie. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you're right. But I, I love it because it like is kind of a slick B movie that's also like really freaky. It's mm. got it's actually got all the Jess Franco stuff in it. It does. But it's like slicker than any movie that he made before that. And I think that was his period that like. Faceless is kind of his high point of that period. And then you get like Night of the Eagles and stuff like that, where he becomes more anonymous throughout. Yeah, yeah. But this one, Dr. Orloff is in it. It's got weird I mean, it's voyeurism another, It's sex another stuff. remake of Eyes Without a Face that like Jeff Franco loves remaking that oh, movie. And is it ever? As well as a little bit of a Philosophy of the Bedroom remake, which mm -hmm. is, you know, he made a million movies like that. And this has a bit of that too. I love that he can just keep going to these subjects. Was anybody ever like, Jess, are we doing this again? Again? This is what we're doing? Yeah. <laughs> nope, because he kept being would, able to make them. Jess Franco was like, I've got it. It's set at a seaside Spanish manor, and there are three naked women just wandering around. And one of them will be, uh, it's on the tip of uh, my wife. Lena Romay. My wife, <laughs> yeah, yes. That's right, Lena Romay. And they said, brilliant, you've done it again. And if you want more talks like that, check out the Patreon episode, because it's like eh, 25 minutes long or whatever. Well, speaking of wildly prolific auteurs. Okay, so we're getting into film festival season for us in Toronto, because right. TIFF is starting. Now, do you like film festivals? Yeah. I used to like them more when I was a kid, when there was more of the, like, I'm an outsider coming into this world. And wow, look at all these things that I'll be able to see. And then when I started to be like, wait, how much does this cost? How do I get tickets for this? Like, especially TIFF, it, there was a barrier that raised itself of something that seemed impenetrable to me because I just didn't have enough money. Really? But you have a pass this year, right? I do. Thanks to my good old pal, Peter Kaplowski. I know you have a pass, thanks to... The Important Cinema Club. Yes. He, Justin pointed at himself. <laughs> hey, I pointed to me and you. I'm half the brand. Yeah, yeah, I pointed to me <laughs> yeah. and you. And I wonder if I could have gotten through The Important Cinema Club. I do it because I... Peter many years ago started like just applying for a pass for me because I watched a lot of screeners for him. So it's like a favor to me and he's like, and he's kept doing it. Let's, and like, let's you keep pass? it going. Yeah. yeah. I, I was wondering if, could I get important cinema club too? They're like only one can go. Well, I mean, if you're already getting a pass. Yeah, I don't need one, but yeah. I want a better pass. <laughs> you know, the one that gets you through the door and you don't have to wait in any lines or anything oh, like that. Oh, well, I mean, all I have to do is flash my important cinema <laughs> club badge and, you know. And people are like, oh, this way, sir. We already have your seats reserved. Mr. Spielberg is calling me over to his table. That's Can't you right. wait? People are so excited for us to be like, oh, we're so tired from seeing so many movies. Yeah. <laughs> but so festival season, it means something. And I want to see if we can kind of like hone in on what that is. And my first idea was, what is a film festival director? Like a, a director that plays every fest. Like he has a movie out, it's going to play film festivals. And somebody who really thrives in the festival context specifically. Because he can't exist anywhere else, basically. Well, yeah, distribution channels being what they are, like most people see their films at festivals. Mm -hmm. And when we were thinking of like, all right, who's the first one that comes to mind? And I went, I got it. Hong Sang-soo. So finally, we are doing a Hong Sang-soo episode. He is the first in festival month at the Important Cinema Club. What do you think festival month should include? Let us know. We're open to suggestions. Yeah. Because I don't know if like we'll be like, another film festival during. I feel like there's a subject in there that we could tackle. But I don't know what it's going to be yet. And we do know that one of the episodes will be just whatever we saw at TIFF. Are you excited for anything? Oh, we should save it for the back matter, actually. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's wait for that. So until next week, my name is Justin the Glue. I'm Will Sun. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to the new people who have recently joined the Patreon, who include Michael Davies, Greg Robinson, Andrew Broughton, OK Neat, 
Ben Grimm, wow, the thing himself, Akio Forces, Jason Coben, Christian Schrader, A Good Boy, Broken Flowers 20, and Matt McCrack. We could not keep doing it without all of you. All right, here we are on the back matter. Yeah, are, back matter. Are t- we excited for anything at TIFF? You know, it's an, ama- an amazing mm. thing. TIFF has been getting some very bad press lately. Yeah. Because they just lost their big sponsor. Have they officially lost it? Or is it rumored they were going to I think to they leave? have officially lost it. Oh, uh, That's Bell. Yeah. And because, like, the screening room that they run year-round, the TIFF Bell light box... It's just the TIFF light box now if they lost it. And also certain high profile members of the executive team have departed in the last month. All bad <laughs> Under rumblings. mysterious circumstances. Yeah, they all died. Yeah. No, they didn't die. They just left. Right before the bell thing happened. Hmm. Right before the huge film festival. Yeah. So, yeah, very strange. Oh, wait. I just remember what one of our subjects is. <laughs> and oh boy, for our film festival month related to TIFF. We'll, we'll hit oh, that. Oh, yeah. That, that'll be good. So. What's playing this year? What are the big titles coming? Well, you know, over the last few years, like the big Oscar-y type movies. I mean, TIFF for a long time tried to brand itself as the launch pad to the Oscars. Yeah, the one that wins the People's Film Festival or Choice has a good chance of winning an Oscar. They would probably get nominated. And so, but that was how TIFF was really trying to brand itself. We're the festival of stars. We're the festival of big Oscar movies. Now, what's funny about this is it literally started as the People's Festival, where it would be all the films that played the other film fest would play at TIFF. Not anymore. Well, yeah, they wanted more world premieres. You remember TIFF had their big war on Telluride? Because they were... Oh, yeah, like, we need the premiere. Telluride doesn't get it. They were scooping them. And then a lot of people said, well, maybe we'll play Telluride instead. Mm -hmm. And then... I don't know. There have been bad, bad things with the brand. Like, I feel like Tiff is not getting some of those like huge movies that they used to. Well, I can't wait to see the new Martin Scorsese film at, hey, wait a minute. It's not playing Tiff. What the heck? Exactly. But what I will say is, so the galas, the huge like star movies are, they look like shit, honestly. So what is playing this year? Can you even remember any of them? Oh God. I mean like Michael Keaton's directorial (laughs) effort, Chris Pine. Well, the thing is they can't get the stars. That's right. In the movies. Yeah. Because of SAG. Okay. But the point I'm actually building towards is that if you look past the galas, there are tons of great movies. Of to watch. course, there's always tons of great movies to watch. There are a million things I'm really looking forward to. I mean, there's, you know, Vim Vendors has a movie that's supposed to be a return to form. Are you excited for a new Vim Vendors movie? Yeah, if it's a return to form. Sorry, I see your face. The minute I said that name, you were making a face, but it's like, I mean, I, people I, say this one's good. I know. I just I have to excited. look at the last decade of Vim Vendors movies, even though he did do some documentaries that were really listen, interesting. Listen, if if I didn't hear that it was good, I wouldn't okay. go see it. Or like Frederick Wiseman as a new I mean, one. Is it eight hours long? I'm sure it's long. Mm-hmm. Wang Bing. Speaking of long filmmakers, Catherine Briah has a new one. There are Ooh, t- a controversial one from Catherine Briah. There, there are a ton of a ton of filmmakers who I'm very excited for. I mean, I'm excited. Going to gala presentation, Ning Hao, the mainland Chinese director, he made like a bunch of movies in the like the late 2000s, like Crazy Stone, Crazy Racer, No Man's Land, which is a film that like seemingly was never going to come out. But then he got a bunch of hits like Breakup Buddies. And I really love his style. I haven't seen his recent films because they've been like big blockbusters and he feels that kind of edgy hat on his early stuff is not really there but he has a new film that stars andy lau and that makes me excited and andy lau will be in tiff now will we be able to see i would love to see his in part just to see andy lau on stage mm-hmm. but i don't know if it'll happen because it's an in conversation well i'm gonna try to be there you're gonna be there yeah have the tickets become available for that already i don't know no oh, well we'll have to check that out i'm kind of counting on it not to sell out Andy Lau, though, like even people that are not usually TIFF attendees, I feel like they're probably going to attend. Well, I hope I hope to be able to go. Have you made a list yet of stuff that you want to see? Have you booted up Tiffer and you're like, I have. And I told you, I just told you most of them. Most there, of them, there okay. are some Midnight Madness ones I want to check out. Like, for example, there's one. What's the gory one? Kill the uh, no no the other one the other gory one when evil something or other oh yeah that one's not really a gory run I, yeah that it's like the what's it called when evil lurks directed by Damien Rugna an Argentinian film I mean the one I would recommend is Kill by Nikhil Nagesh Bat it's an Indian movie that's like raid on a train and it's like only a little bit above ninety minutes so it's a rare okay. Indian film it's 
really good and i only saw a rough cut version of it so i'm excited to see it like supposedly they cut down a lot which makes me very excited because it's like trimming that you know fat on a movie and even like some of the visual effects were not quite there are you excited for the new harmony korean movie aggro drift yes i am i'm, that movie I, is. I'm curious more than anything as peter has said when we talked about it i've seen clips of it that he's shown me but he's like people people are not ready for this movie they do not know what it is oh, i'm psyched <laughs> that like it 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 it's straight up. Have you read that interview that he did? Yeah, where he's I did. like the cutscenes of any Call of Duty film are better than any film Steven Spielberg has ever made. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Well, that's what Agro Drift is—a straight-up troll to like audiences that I don't think any of the Midnight Madness films are galas, so people will not be paying eighty-five dollars to see <laughs> these, which is nice. But it's going to be fun to be in that audience, and, and slowly a wave of realization <laughs> will hit them of like what this actually is. That's like when I saw Trash Humpers at TIFF, like yes. over a decade ago. I think that this is less, I guess, <sighs> I don't want, like aggressive than Trash Humpers. It's more of a super weird vibe, mm-hmm. and. I'm going to predict the Will Sloan review. Okay. We'll include the sentence. It really got hard to look at after a while because <laughs> it's all like a night division. <laughs> like you're going to be like, what? How am I still watching this? Like <laughs> the balls that they, he has to make a whole movie like this. Color me intrigued. Now, who are you excited to see walking the streets? Uh, are you going to look through no. the window and see Jeff Wells? Oh, well, if I, well, I've already, I've met Jeff Wells. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, okay. I, I have an actual Jeff Wells story. Yeah. I think this will be a good thing to close this out on. Mm-hmm. Maybe five years ago, I was at a TIFF party. Would you believe that? I was at a party. You love it. Any party, you want to be there. That's right. And I'm at the bar and who comes up next to me? Jeff Wells from Hollywood Elsewhere. Whoa. Did you go, Jeff? I, I, what I did was I said, are you Jeff Wells? And he said, yes. And I went, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> you told me the story I, said, I said that, and he look and he looks at me like cocks an eyebrow and goes, "Really?" And then I'm thinking like, "I just lied straight to this man's I, face." Well, I, yeah, exactly. I think I'm thinking like, "Wait a minute, I I I hate him." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I do read him, but like, and then I'm trying to think like, how do I get out of this? And then I'm just like, double down, and I'm like. Oh yeah, I read <laughs> I read Hollywood elsewhere every day, and you do. And he's like really and then i'm like well fuck it can i get a picture with you (laughs) (laughs) the only time it's ever happened is i stopped mr j row in the lobby of scotia bank and went johnson rosenbaum and he turned and he looked like as if i was like a tax collector (laughs) coming after him deer in the headlights yeah when you see the frightened rosenbaum and i was like oh i'm a big fan love your criticism he said oh thank you i said good day and then i just kept going when you see a rosenbaum in the wild do not pet him just just keep a respectful distance and then he sat behind me at the screening of that Jean Godard biopic. Oh, Le Redoutable. Le Redoutable. Yeah. Him and his friends just laughing it up during the entire screening. Ah, I'm glad I'm glad he's living his best life. <laughs>